This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to We Are History with me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. So, Angela, you've chosen today's topic... Or did you? Maybe you are just in the pay of our robot overlords. Well, John, you will never know for sure. But I think what you're referring to is the fact that my chosen topic for today is the history of AI. And I'm really hoping, John, that you've read that right in my notes and you haven't spent the week researching the history of a bloke called Al. Oh, I'm not that old and stupid, Angela. No, I've been researching aluminium. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so john ai has been a bit of a hot topic it has. recently and we're both writers so it's probably something that we need to be aware of and and thinking about the writers guild of america have been out on strike and a big part of their concerns is the future role of ai when it comes to writing film tv and other media absolutely so i thought it would be good for us to see what we're dealing with john and just look at how AI has developed and got to where we are. Yeah. So I've been playing, John, to see what we're dealing with. I've been playing with something called ChatGPT. Do you know what that is? I've heard of it. It's um, Chat Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Is that right? That's right, John. Yeah, you definitely got that right out of your brain, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I didn't read it off your notes at all. <laughs> you didn't read it off my notes at all. <laughs> yeah, so ChatGPT is an example of one of these large model-based chatbots. So I thought if we're doing an episode on the history of AI, I should use it to write the introduction for this episode. That's hilarious. What are we up against? (laughs) Tell us. So I asked it, can you write an introduction to the history of AI in the style of British comedian Angela Barnes? And quite frankly, John, it's the most insulting thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm a woman on telly. I get insulted every day. This is it. I can't wait to hear it. Right. You've got to read it out now. Come on. Let's hear what British comedian Angela Barnes would say. Okay. This is not me speaking. I cannot stress that enough. This is how ChatGPT thinks I would introduce this podcast. You ready? Go on then. Here goes. Ladies and gentlemen, gather round for a jolly good tale about the history (laughs) of artificial intelligence. Now, before we embark on this technological journey, I must clarify that I'm not an expert in AI. Far from it, exclamation mark. But hey, I'm Angela Barnes, your friendly neighbourhood comedian. This is gold dust. (laughs) I'll do my best, John, to make this story entertaining. So let's dive into the wild world of AI with a cup of tea and a few laughs, shall we? Oh, Our story got you begins. Down. Oh, it's not done yet. It's not oh, done God. yet. They've got you down to, no, oh, I'm getting a cup of tea, my friendly neighbourhood comedian. Oh. Do continue. Our story begins in the misty past, long before smartphones and social media took over our lives. Back in the 1950s, a bunch of brainy chaps and chapettes, oh, I'm oh, no. sick in my mouth, decided <laughs> to teach computers to think like humans. Why? Because it sounded like a smashing idea, of course. They dreamt of machines that could solve problems, learn from their mistakes, and maybe even tell a few jokes. Is it over? It's over, John. 
Isn't that awful? Oh, my God. I love the cup of tea. The cup of tea. You're my friendly neighbourhood comedian. <laughs> oh, and chaps and chapettes. Oh. That's so you. They've got you down to a tea. You see, you, when you hear your own voice recorded, you never think it sounds like you. That's what that speech is for you. You think, oh, that's not me. And everyone else is going, that's pop perfect, Angela, that is. That's exactly what she sounds like. That is you. If you hadn't told us that was a chatbot, we would have nailed it immediately. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Right. Bainy chaps and chapettes. I love it. Um, well, I, I mean, so we don't have to do the podcast anymore. We can just get ChatGBT to write it. I did try that and it was a disaster. It sounds like something for that you're like some 1950s children's TV presenter. <laughs> get an adult to help you with some blunt ended scissors and some glue. <laughs> so, Angela. Yes. Tell us. I want to hear from you, Angela. I'm not interested in the computers. I want to hear from you telling me about it. So to start with then, what do we mean by artificial intelligence? Well, John, should we start with the good old Oxford English Dictionary definition? Go on, John, give it to him. All right. Well, I could give you that. That definition in the Oxford English Dictionary says that AI is the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence, such as a visual perception, speech recognition, decision-making, and translation between languages. Well, there we go. That's that sorted. Slightly worried about that decision-making one at the end there. (laughs) Yeah, we will come on to that for sure. So there's a whole world of rabbit holes that you can go down when it comes to understanding what AI is and how it works. But we'll leave most of that to the science podcasts, I think, because I thought it'd be interesting to look at the history of the idea of artificial intelligence and how quickly that idea has developed to where we are now over the last hundred years. And John, I actually do know a little bit about the history of AI. Oh, yeah. Because believe it or not, I did an AI module at university. What on earth possessed you to do that, Angela? (laughs) Well, that's a good question. So I studied linguistics at Sussex University and they have the school system there. So I did it in the School of Cognitive Science and you had to choose a minor subject to go with your major. So in my first year to sort of test out which minor I would do, I did modules in artificial intelligence and philosophy. And I'll let you guess which one I dropped in the second year. Um, (laughs) Spoiler alert, it wasn't philosophy. So it was nearly 30 years ago that I studied a whole term of AI. Well, you've probably got it all covered. I mean, it won't have changed much since then. Well, no, that's I don't think much has happened in the last 30 years. Probably enough. Um, probably enough. <laughs> so, John, <laughs> while artificial intelligence feels like a pretty modern, recent topic, I'm still going to go back a bit, John. Of course you are. I am. <laughs> going to go back to the ancient civilizations. Really? Because human beings... <laughs> yeah, I know. You're surprised. <laughs> Bear with me. Human beings have been fascinated forever with what makes us human, what life is, what intelligent thought is, and whether we ourselves could recreate it. Sure. Um, It's quite tempting there to make a joke about Love Island or TOWIE, isn't it, when we talk about intelligent life? But we're better than that, aren't we, John? We're much better Um, than jokes about artificial intelligence and TOWIE. Yes. Laughing at those silly people. Yes, of course we are. So there were lots of stories and ideas in ancient civilizations and right up through the Middle Ages to present day that feature non-human beings, some of which were human-like, as far back as stories go, really. So in Greek mythology, you had Talos, who was a bronze automaton built by Hephaestus to protect the Phoenician princess Europa on the island of Crete. Great pronunciation there, Angela. 
<laughs> I, I just ran at it like you do, John. I... Yeah, yeah. In Jewish folklore, Golem was animated anthropomorphic being, uh, and he was usually made from clay or mud, wasn't he? And then during the Middle Ages, it was believed you could animate a golem by inserting a piece of paper with any of God's names on it into the mouth, which sounds reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. In 1537, there was the Swiss physician and alchemist Parcelus, and he was sort of quite well respected in the field of medicine, um, but he also had this kind of otherworldliness to it. So he wrote something called On the Nature of Things, and in that he describes this procedure that he claims can fabricate an artificial man. And all you have to do, John, is place the sperm of a man in horse dung and feed it the arcanum of man's blood and then bang after 40 days you've got a living infant yeah it's probably just as well we're not in the same room today or we would have given it a go but uh, of course we've we've all tried it yeah i think we could have done i'm sure i'm sure you could get hold of uh, horse dung in in islington where we usually record um, <laughs> yeah. yeah of course um Ideas about artificial intelligence, uh, reanimation, creation of life, and artificial or machine intelligence, they're sort of um, recurrent themes in literature, aren't they? Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Metropolis, Douglas Adams' Deep Thought in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Short Circuit, Short Circuit 2. Absolutely. (laughs) So, So, yeah, this idea of humans creating something resembling human life or human intelligence, but that isn't human... It's pretty entrenched. And in the 17th century, as early as that, John, there started to be developments which saw these ideas move towards becoming reality. So uh, in the 17th century, there were some philosophical and mechanical developments that really laid the groundwork for the future development of AI. So, for example, the philosopher and mathematician René Descartes, he uh, proposed that all physical phenomena including the operation of living organisms, could be explained as mechanical processes. Yeah, so there was this idea that human reasoning could be explained in terms of calculations and mathematical reasoning and logic, yeah? Yeah. Of course, they'd never seen me trying to put on a duvet cover, John. So. Right. Correct <laughs> comedy choice, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, have I said that right, Angela? Near enough, John, yeah. Pretty good run at it. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz was a German philosopher, mathematician and polymath who had an interest in the development of logical machines. He developed the step reckoner that used a system of gears and wheels to carry out basic arithmetic. Yeah, and he was also a proponent of the binary number system, the system where all numbers and mathematical operations can be represented using only the digits zero and one, John. You know what binary is. I do, yeah. And that then became the foundation of modern digital computing, uh, which uses binary digits or bits to represent and process information. So really important developments going on. I know what binary is. I was actually at binary bingo night the other night. Actually, it was like one, 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 all the ones, one, 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 one. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. <laughs> Pierre de Fermat, a French lawyer and mathematician, made significant contributions to the development of probability theory. Uh, and that's a crucial component of modern AI, particularly in machine learning algorithms, Angela. 
Yes. So it's 17th century and it's all going on, John. All this yeah. stuff is happening, which means that AI as we know it can happen. So, of course, it's going to require the development of more complex computing machines and processing yeah, power yeah. and things like that. But that is all to come. And then 1837, you've got Charles Babbage. He designed the analytical engine, which is often considered to be the precursor to modern computers. It was a sort of general purpose mechanical computing device that used punched cards for input and could perform various calculations. Yeah, so it's a theoretical device. It was never actually built during Babbage's lifetime okay. uh, because of funding and technical limitations and stuff. So it wasn't until over a century later in 1941 that the German civil engineer Konrad Suse built the first general purpose computer, which was called the Z3. Z3 seems like a weird place to start. You'd start with an A1, wouldn't you, and work your way down to the Zs. Yeah, what happened to Z1 and Z2? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should take our first break there, and I'll be back in one zero yeah. minutes. I think 10 minutes is too long, John. I see, one, see what I'm doing there, Angela. One zero is binary for two, in it? Back in two minutes. Oh, God, yeah. Hello and welcome back to We Are History, where we're talking about the history of AI. And we're finally in the 20th century. And the beginning of the 20th century saw another breakthrough which made AI seem plausible, the study of mathematical logic. That's right, John. It's exciting times. Between 1910 and 1913, Alfred North Whitehead and Bertram Russell, I've heard of him. Yep. Uh, they published The Principa Mathematica. Have you read it? Uh, I wait for the film, Angela. Oh, fair enough, yeah. Well, it introduced the notation and concepts that are still used in modern logic today, and apparently these are fundamental to AI. I'm not going to pretend I understand what I'm saying here, really, <laughs> but they're fundamental, especially in areas related to knowledge, representation, and reasoning. Okay. There's a lot of independent work going on in different fields in the mid-20th century that would come to play significant roles in the development of what would become artificial intelligence. So by the 1940s, not only did you have this sort of mathematical, logical stuff going on, there's also a lot of biological research, research in neurology, for example, which has started to show that the brain was this electrical network of neurons firing pulses all over the place. Right. Um, again, you know, I'm not a scientist, John. And but this study of biological neurons, this led to work in the 1940s and 1950s by researchers like Warren McCulloch and Walter Pitts, who were trying to develop mathematical models of artificial neurons. So taking what they'd learned in biology and trying to recreate it in maths and science, I guess. And right. again, their work would become the foundation for what they call artificial neural networks, which are the basis for modern AI. And then you come forward to 1950, psychologist Fran Rosenblatt developed the concept of perceptrons. Sounds like a Doctor Who baddie, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, it's Doctor Who versus the perceptrons. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that's a simple, and well, it depends who you're asking, binary classification algorithm that takes a set of binary inputs and produces a binary output. This is basic stuff to me. They are the building blocks of neural networks which are widely used in various AI applications today. 
Yes. So you have, like I said, the fields of biology and mechanics are being brought together during this period. And one man who was trying to do that was a man with the best name so far, I think, because he's called Norbert Wiener. Um, (laughs) Poor, poor Norbert Wiener. He wasn't Um, teased. And he was... He wasn't teased at all. He was a mathematician, philosopher, and and computer scientist, and he came up with the term cybernetics. And that basically is the science of this communication as it relates to living things and machines. So the sort of bringing of those two things together. So, so Norbert Weiner wasn't only have a name like that, but he was a he was a science nerd at school. He wasn't captain of the rugby team. No. Poor Norbert. He wasn't getting the girls, was he? Norbert Weiner, bless him. He wasn't Norbert. I'm really into cybernetics and uh, computer science. Yeah, well, actually, I'm going out with Brad. Brad, who's captain of the soccer team. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, at this time in the 1940s and 50s, a handful of scientists from a variety of fields: mathematics, psychology, engineering, economics, political science, etc began to discuss the possibility of creating an artificial brain. Yeah, suddenly these things that have been theories started to have a little bit of grounding in in reality. So probably the most famous early pioneer in the field of artificial intelligence, as we understand it today, is Alan Turing. Yes. Um, In 1936, he put forward a hypothesis of a computing machine, which he called the A machine, which I think sounds like my rapper name. Um, <laughs> but it later became known as the Turing machine, which you may have heard of. And I'll yeah. tell you, John, I have read and reread descriptions of his models to try and understand it, but I have failed miserably. Oh, no. To the point where I'm quite minded to add the hashtag, this is not a science podcast to this episode. So if yeah. you do want to find out more than the very basics, Google is your friend here and good luck to you. But I'll, I'll have a go at it. You ready? Go on then. Yeah, go go from the top. Very basically, a Turing machine is a hypothetical machine that is capable of simulating the logic of any computer algorithm, no matter how complex. So it's a very simple machine that consists of a tape of infinite length. So it's not real, okay. John. But, oh, I see. It's in your head. Okay. On which sim, or not in my head, very much not in my head. Um, (laughs) But here we go. A tape of infinite length on which symbols can be written. And then there's a read write head that can move back and forth along the tape and read or write symbols. And a finite state machine that controls the head and can change its state based on the symbols that it reads or writes. And the Turing machine is capable of solving any problem that can be solved by a computer algorithm, making it the theoretical basis for modern computing. Got that? Uh, No, I'm not sure it's actually compatible with my printer. (laughs) 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 This is like me and nuclear physics all over again, Angela. Uh, Me trying to explain that episode we did on the nuclear bombs. Um, anyway, Turing's work on his theories uh, was sidelined a bit by this thing called World War II, which we should probably cover at some point. Mm. But anyway, anyone who has seen the imitation game will know he got very busy developing his machine called the Bomba in order to crack the Enigma code. That's right, John. But he will come back, Mr. Turing. So when it comes to working out what the very first actual programmable computer was, there is some dispute. But it's fair to say that because it's wartime, and as wartime often does, it spurs on some technological advancements. Here in Britain, the Colossus was a set of computers invented by Tommy Flowers, who, although he sounds like a music hall act, was a, a general post office research telephone engineer. 
That's right. And he'd actually worked alongside our friend Alan Turing on his bomber machine. And it was Turing who recommended him to a man called Max Newman. And Max Newman's department at Bletchley Park uh, was looking at machine methods, trying to crack another German cipher called the Lorenz. So first of all... Um, they created a machine that they called Heath Robinson, and right. it was named by the women in the Bletchley department um, after the cartoonist who is famous for those intricate, mad drawings of machinery. Yes. They used that to try and break the code, but it had various limitations. So um, old Tommy Flowers actually put his own money in, and with a team of 50 people, he developed the first prototype of this machine called Colossus. Right. And it was shipped to Bletchley Park in January 1944. And it started working on cracking its first message on the 5th of February 1944. So that's okay. the first example of a programmable computer doing its job. Fantastic. In Britain. In Britain. In the United Kingdom. Then an improved version, imaginatively called Colossus Mark II, um, that used shift registers to quintuple the processing speed. And that first worked on the 1st of June, 1944, just in time for the Normandy landings on D-Day. I shouldn't think they took one with them. No, I don't think they did, no. But it did help to intercept messages, so it did help with the operation. Right. Um, Ten Colossus machines were in use by the end of the war, and an 11th one was being commissioned. Uh, But their existence was actually a complete secret until the 1970s. They were dismantled, and the bits were sort of spread out around the country. And then in 2008, some researchers painstakingly rebuilt one, and uh, you can go and see it at the National Museum of Computing at Bletchley. Fantastic. So after the war, researchers like Turing were able to go back to their theories of working on the possibility of an electronic brain, Angela. That's it. So you've got a little bit of increased computer power thanks to the war and um, we're back to trying to recreate intelligence of some sort. So in 1950, Alan Turing wrote this seminal paper, which is very famous, called Computing Machinery and Intelligence uh, in the Oxford University Press Journal Mind. And in it, he ponders the question, Can machines think? Now, Mm. brace yourself for some thinking here, John. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. There's a problem with the question, can machines think? And that is that neither the term machine or the term think are very clearly and unambiguously defined. Okay. So Turing decided he needed to devise a test that if passed, it would show that a machine is, inverted commas, thinking and he originally called it the imitation game hence the name of the film but the test is now more commonly known as the turing test very famous right the imitation game was an old parlor game wasn't it whereby a man and woman are allocated to be uh player a or b and are hidden from an interrogator who can be of any gender the interrogator can communicate with them only in writing and has to ask questions in order to determine their gender. The player A's job is to trick the interrogator, and player B's is to try and help the interrogator get the right answer. Yeah, so it's that, can you tell the gender of somebody by their answers? So in the Turing test, instead of the part of player A being taken by someone of a specific gender, player A is taken by a machine, So instead of trying to determine whether the players are male or female, the interrogator has to determine 
whether they're human or machine. So okay. the interrogator can communicate in writing only with both the man and the machine by typing into a terminal. This is all theoretical at this stage. Yeah. And both A and B, so both man and computer, would be trying to convince the interrogator that they are human. So the machine wins if the interrogator can't cons- consistently tell which is which. And that's the okay. Turing test. And that's basically what we do every time we contact a helpline on our computer. It's about five answers in, you realise, oh, this isn't someone answering me. This is a bloody machine. Yeah. Um, so this changes the question from can machines think to can machines behave in a way that is indistinguishable from the way a thinker acts. Yeah? Yeah, that's it. The machine isn't necessarily thinking, but it's acting as though it is. So Turing also noted in this same paper what he meant by machines when considering the question of whether they can think. So, for example, he thought that creating a human clone, while technically that would be man-made, it wouldn't be an interesting example to answer the question about whether machines can think because it would still be a human. So he said the focus should be on the capabilities of digital machinery. That is machines which manipulate the binary digits of one and zero, rewriting them into memory using simple rules. Yeah. And he gave two main reasons for this being the parameters. One is there's no reason to speculate whether or not these machines can exist because they already do. Right. So they've got something to work with. And secondly, there's another sciencey philosophy bit coming here, John. Oh, great. I'm good at these. You ready? Yeah. So according to Turing's theories, digital machinery is what he called universal. So his research into the foundations of computation proved that a digital computer can, in theory, simulate the behavior of any other digital machine given enough memory and time. So therefore, if any digital machine can act like it's thinking, then every sufficiently powerful digital machine also can. Now, look, I'm not pretending to completely understand this concept because I'm struggling to think my digital watch off the market is going to be able to pass (laughs) itself off as a MacBook. But I'm willing to concede that Turing might have thought about this a bit more than I did. Yeah, yeah. So the focus of the Turing test, as he himself put it in the paper, isn't to determine whether all digital computers would do well in the imitation game, nor whether the computers that were available at the time would do well, but whether there are imaginable computers which would do well. Okay. I mean, that's a bit of a cop-out. It's like, yeah, they, it might be possible in the future. It's like, I haven't actually worked this out myself, but it could come true to pass. Well, I think what he's saying is that the imaginable machines would need to pass the Turing tests. I see. Okay. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, which I haven't yeah. invented yet. It's not good enough, Alan. <laughs> So what's next, though? Through the 50s and 60s, isn't it often referred to as the golden age of AI? Yeah. So in uh, 1951, a British computer scientist at the University of Manchester called Christopher Strachey, he yeah. wrote a program for playing drafts. And he also wrote one for playing chess as well, a very basic one, uh, right. using a computer called the Manchester Mark One. And this is sometimes referred to as the world's first video game. So, again, there's a little bit of dispute about that, but it's the first time that a computer was used to play a game. Um, Then in 1952, he went on to develop a love letter generator, which is the world's first computer-generated literature, and I can't decide whether that's very sweet or very creepy. Again, (laughs) he was probably quite lonely, wasn't he? 
Yeah, that's right. No girls at school. So as digital computing developed in the 50s and computer scientists had more access to these machines, they realized that a machine could manipulate numbers, could also manipulate symbols, and that the manipulation of symbols could well be the essence of human thought. Apparently so. So then things really start kicking off. In 1955, Alan Newell, Herbert A. Simon and Cliff Shaw began working on something called the Logic Theorist. And this was the first program that was deliberately engineered to perform automated reasoning. It was sometimes described as the very first artificial intelligence program. So in the 50s, we we sort of got artificial intelligence of a a sort. Um, And its function was to prove complex mathematical theorems just as well as a mathematician could. Yeah, they claim to have, quote, solved the venerable mind-body problem um, by showing how a system composed of matter can have the properties of mind, albeit quite limited yeah. ones at this stage, I'd say. Yeah, there's sort of philosophers up to this point that have this, they call it the mind-body problem, you know, so what is the body in relation to what's going on in your right. mind? We still don't know. Um, so in 1956, the Dartmouth Summer Research Project on artificial intelligence took place in New Hampshire. And this was the real turning point. This was where the term artificial intelligence was actually coined. Up to this point, none of these researchers had used that phrase. It was um, John McCarthy who came up with it. Uh, And largely he came up with it. You'll like this, John, because it was a way to delineate what they were doing with cybernetics, which was Norbert Wiener's work, your friend Norbert Wiener. And by all accounts... Norbert Wiener, there's one article I read where he was described as, inverted commas, assertive. And I get the feeling from my reading that meant he was a pain in the arse and people didn't want to work with him. (laughs) So they sort of developed this other branch of research and called it artificial intelligence to sort of delineate from what he was doing so they didn't have to work with him. Okay, well, we've all had people like Norbert we've had to work with. Um, This conference (laughs) you're talking about ran for six weeks in the summer of 1956, is widely seen as the birth of the field of AI. It is. And the years that followed it saw loads of developments in the field with machines that were solving algebraic equations, learning English, proving these mathematical theories. And the excitement around AI was such that in the field, they really felt that a fully intelligent machine would be developed within 20 years. Um, now, spoiler alert, that didn't happen. But you know what did turn up 20 years after that conference, John? What? What? Me. Me. I said, what if I am that fully intelligent machine and I just don't know it? That would explain how you trounced Denise Van Uten on House of Games, Angela. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I am a machine. Well, maybe we should take a break while I have an existential crisis about that. Am I a robot? Am I the only robot? Am I the only human and you're all robots? I'm going to need to lie down. Hello and welcome back to We Are History, where we are looking at the history of artificial intelligence. And we're in the middle of the 20th century now. G-Plan furniture, Formica, as far as the eye can see. Yes. Oh, that's good times, wasn't it, John? I love a bit of G-Plan. Anyway, happy times. Happy times. So <laughs> one of the important goals of AI, John, was that yep. computers should be able to communicate in natural language. So obviously computers right. use their own language. Um, now, if you remember... 
I was a linguistic student. So that's, that's right. how I came to have to do a module in artificial intelligence, particularly during the latter half of the 20th century. We'll come on to it a bit more. Computer science was really looking at natural language processing and how to replicate it in a computer. So they would do it using language data sets, dictionaries, vocabularies, you know, and grammar rules and things, semantic networks to try and build this framework of relations to different linguistic components and concepts. I think it's fair to say, John, that during my term of AI studies, I was seriously out of my depth. (laughs) (laughs) But, But there's one thing that really stuck with me when I was learning about this stuff. And I came across it again in researching this episode. So I thought I'd really talk about it because have you heard of something called the ELISA program? That sounds like what um, happens in Pygmalion. Well, it is named after Eliza Doolittle. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's named after her. Um, so it was created at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is obviously very yeah. famous in the field of AI and robotics and stuff. Yeah. Uh, by a man called Joseph Feisenbaum in 1967 to 68. And it was the first chatbot, really. And it was one of the first test cases for that hypothetical Turing test. So it was the first time, or one of the first times, the Turing test was sort of used in the real world. So what it was, it was a text-based program, and its most famous application was called Doctor. So what it did, it had a script, if you like, which was based on the principles of a Rogerian therapist. Now, a Rogerian therapist is a therapist that refrains from offering any advice or making a formal diagnosis. It's when the primary role of the therapist is to listen and just restate what the client has said. Okay. So this script dictated those rules for Eliza to abide by, when the user was asking her questions and then Eliza would use pattern matching from the script to create this illusion of understanding. And it was really interesting what happened because despite the program not being able to communicate with any actual understanding, it's just following a set of rules. It's just faking it. Yeah. Weizenbaum found that users using it would attribute emotions and feelings to the program and their relationship with it. The more wow, that you use it, you, you can actually go online and, and try it. If you just put Eliza um, archive or something in Google, it will come up and it's quite old fashioned. Obviously. And I remember using it in the, so it would have been in 1996. Right. We got to sort of have a go on it. And this was before, you know, those chatbot customer service things that you were talking about that we know now. And I remember being really impressed by it in 1996 when I would type in a question and it would answer it. And the answer wouldn't be good, (laughs) you know, but, but it was really impressive at the time. I was chatting with the computer. That was something at that time that we hadn't done before. Yeah. Um, I tried it again yesterday. And of course, compared to what we've got today, it was shit. But <laughs> I thought I'd include that in this because it was a real nostalgia hit for me. I remember sitting in the computer room at Sussex Uni and um, talking to Eliza and going, wow, it's answering my questions. That's really weird. And That's how amazing, far it? we've come in less than 30 years, you know. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a bit unfair calling it Eliza because Eliza Pygmalion is... It's not just a robot that they are programming. She's an actual human being who has emotions and comes good at the end. So That's right, John. You tell them. I'll tell them. Despite all these developments happening, by the mid-70s, 
the optimism about the possibility of creating artificial intelligence began to fade somewhat, hadn't it? As things weren't progressing as fast yeah. as those excited researchers in the 50s had thought they probably would. Yeah, you know, in the 50s, they thought they were going to have fully intelligent machines in 20 years. And then in 20 years, it hadn't happened. Yeah. Also, there were the financial implications of AI research, which were huge, obviously, to make yeah. the machines and do the work. And and because these promised developments weren't happening, it wasn't being materialised, funding was getting harder and harder to come by. You know, people are like, why am I putting my money in that when it doesn't yeah. seem to be going yeah. anywhere? Yeah, in the 70s, computers just weren't powerful enough to turn theories into reality. And the sheer size of the information and data sets required to replicate things like natural language or vision just weren't possible. Uh, you know, they couldn't recreate them artificially. No, not at that time. And there were other obstacles. Like, for example, how do you even begin to replicate something like human common sense? Yeah. Uh, that's not a rhetorical question john i'd really love to know because i don't have any <laughs> Do you know my my it's genuinely true my primary school headmaster once wrote in a report about me he said i've never met a child so intelligent yet with so little common sense i think her <laughs> mind must be on higher things well that's very flattering <laughs> i think so but it's that still mean, you now oh yeah i mean i can't even change a light bulb no, like, but you've yeah, got common sense wisdom. is like wisdom, like social sort of wisdom, isn't it? I think you've got that as well. But emotional common sense, I think, just not practical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there are things related to human consciousness that just don't seem possible to recreate in a machine, don't you think? Yeah, and, and this problem is summed up by a thought experiment that was done by um, philosopher John Searle in 1980, and he called it the Chinese Room. Yep. And it was an experiment, a thought experiment, to show that a computer being able to follow instructions based on data, like Eliza did, yeah. isn't proof of consciousness in that computer. So right. the scenario in the thought experiment involves a person, the man in the room, right. who doesn't understand Chinese, but he is given a set of rules and a large database of Chinese symbols. Yeah. So this person can manipulate the symbols based on the rules they've been given to respond to questions or statements in Chinese. So it's creating the illusion of understanding to an external observer. Right. But as Searle points out, even though the person inside the room can produce coherent Chinese responses, they don't truly understand Chinese. Instead, okay. they're just following syntactic rules without grasping any semantics they don't know the meaning of the symbols so it's the same with the computer when it operates based on algorithms and syntax it might process the information but it lacks genuine understanding or consciousness yeah that's really interesting yeah projects like the psych project which started in 1984 have tried to challenge the common sense problem their theory is that the only way a machine can replicate the common sense that a person had is create a massive database containing all the facts interesting and mundane that a person knows from the colors of the flag of luxembourg uh, i think i know that to why you shouldn't lick a plug socket and the only way to teach a computer this stuff is in real time item by item concept by concept so it was a project expected to take decades and it is still ongoing apparently yeah it is so because of this lack of speedy progress the first ai winter hit and progress in the field of AI really slowed down. Um, and that was until there were some new developments that came along a bit later in the 1980s. But for the 60s, 
computer scientists have been working on what they called expert systems. And they were really ramped up in this period, weren't they? Yeah. So in the 80s, we saw this sort of ballooning of expert systems. An expert system is a program that answers questions about a specific domain of knowledge. So it uses those logical rules that are derived from the knowledge of experts. So what it means is you can feed a machine knowledge about a specific field and it can use that information to make decisions and solve problems, negating the need for a human expert. Yeah, good, because we're tired of experts now, aren't we, Angela? Yeah, thank you, Michael Gove. (laughs) So up till this point, the study of artificial intelligence hadn't really got any practical applications in the real world. However, these expert systems, they could be adopted in the fields of, say, medicine and science and by any number of corporations who have money to spend. And they did spend it on creating these industry-specific expert systems. One of the main things that saw the money come flooding back into research and ended the first AI winter was that in 1982, Japan set aside $850 million for what it called the Fifth Generation Computer Project, a 10-year plan to write programs and build machines that could carry on conversations, translate languages, interpret pictures, and reason like human beings. Yeah, and suddenly, all the other countries got a bit freaked out and thought, oh, well, if Japan's spending all this money, we'd better start spending some money on our own AI programs again. So there was suddenly, because of what Japan was doing, a thaw in these funding freezes and AI research was back in America and Britain and other places. And there were exciting new things going on. And especially in the development of, if you remember, John, we talked about them earlier, those artificial neural networks that were sort of modelled on the brain. Right. Yeah. But in typical boom and bust style, by the end of the 80s, not enough progress was being made in the eyes of the money men. And there was a second AI winter from 1987 to 1993. Yeah, those expert systems that, you know, people got really excited about and spent a load of money on and gained so much popularity so quickly, really quickly became obsolete um, because by the late 80s, early 90s, you had Apple and IBM were developing desktop computers with ever-increasing processing power. And in comparison to those, those specialist AI knowledge machines that everyone had been spending money on in the 80s, were expensive to maintain, they were hard to upgrade, they were hard to develop, they couldn't learn. And so, yeah, they became obsolete. And 10 years on, Japan's fifth generation project had failed to meet its 10-year goals. A new billion-dollar industry was disappearing as quickly as it arrived. Over 300 AI companies had shut down, gone bankrupt, or been acquired by the end of 1993. That's right. So AI research at this point sort of splinters into different subgroups with different focuses, foci? What is it? Is it foci? AI will tell you. Anyway, yeah, I'll ask a chat GPT later. Um, (laughs) And AI researchers, they start to give different names to their work because this field of AI is starting to get a little bit discredited because of the speed of how things are happening. It starts to become a bit unfashionable. I see. Um, The New York Times reported in 2005, they said at this time, Computer scientists and software engineers avoided the term artificial intelligence for fear of being viewed as wild-eyed dreamers. So all the work was still going on, but they just did it under different names, really. Yeah, in the 90s, the idea of cybernetics from the 1960s were revived, and there's a renewed interest in robotics. John, don't do the dance. I'm going to do the robotics dance, Angela. Don't do the dance. (laughs) 
Cognitive scientists in particular believe that to be really intelligent, a machine needed to have a body that also interacted with the environment around it. Yeah, that's right. Up to this point, really, artificial intelligence had been in machines, a sort of almost a brain in a jar thing. Right. And then in the 90s, the theories changed a bit because everyone was looking for this elusive common sense reasoning that AI researchers had struggled to replicate. And the theories were with cognitive scientists that to have real common sense, you needed to rely on not just your brain, but on your motor skills, your physical senses an intelligent being needed to move and feel the world around it in order to survive in it so there was a lot of developments in robotics in fact at this time I remember being taken up to the robotics lab at Sussex University and um, seeing lots of little things that look like insects running around which is very impressive I didn't understand any of it (laughs) it's amazing And there were landmarks in this field in the 90s, such as in uh, 1997, I remember this, when a chess-playing expert system called Deep Blue, which was run on an IBM supercomputer that had been purpose-built, managed to defeat the chess master Gary Kasparov. It was the first chess computer to win a match with a reigning world champion under regular time controls. It was. I actually weirdly listened to a podcast this morning after I'd sent you these notes and it was um, our lovely friends at No Such Thing as a Fish and they were talking about this match, the deep blue match and they were saying that apparently IBM built into the program in order to beat Gary Kasparov this idea, so Gary Kasparov was known for his sort of psychological gameplay so he would do things like take his watch off slowly and put it on the table and then pick it up again and all these ways of getting into his opponent's heads. Right. So IBM, when they developed Deep Blue, they came up with this idea that because Deep Blue would do all these computations at once, yep. sometimes they took longer than others depending on how complex the moves were. So they built in some time between it getting the move that it wanted to do and saying what the move was wow. so that Gary Kasparov would think every move was really complex That's good. and would get in his head. And uh, chess experts now think that that computer, that's how it beat him, not just on the... Psychologically. Uh, you know, that actually it, it, wow. Gary Kasparov was a better player than the machine, but it got in his head. That's so clever. Yeah. Yeah, but that's again that's that's clever human programmers rather than a clever program, you know. Absolutely. I mean the machine Deep Blue was incredible. It was capable of processing yeah. 200 million moves per second. Yeah. And it was 10 million times faster than that computer. You know Christopher Strachey back in Manchester in yeah. 1951. Uh it's 10 million times faster than that that he taught to play chess and and drafts. I reckon I could have beaten Deep Blue. Do you know how I would have done it? Go on. Pull the plug out. didn't see that one coming did you deep blue (laughs) in the same year speech recognition software developed by dragon systems was implemented on windows yes so this increase in processing power is happening and and so things are starting to move much more quickly than they had before and this is explained by something called moore's law uh, which is named after gordon moore who was one of the co-founders of the intel corporate i can't say intel without my brain going dun 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 dun, dun. how's it go i can't think how it goes now i'm just thinking gordon moore gordon moore gordon moore (laughs) so in the 60s gordon moore moore's law predicted that the speed and memory capacity of computers 
doubles every two years. So, of course, from the 50s to the 90s, it was relatively slow. Right. And now, of course, it, with this exponential growth in processing power, things move pretty quickly. So why is everything I'm watching on telly still buffering? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That'll be your telly, John. John, you need to buy a new telly. <laughs> <laughs> By the noughties, computers are getting faster and cheaper. There's access to vast amounts of data known as big data. So instead of economic and business decisions being made on samples of data, enormous sets of data and complete sets of data can be processed to give all sorts of information. Yes. And of course, the internet has hugely impacted AI research. It enhances access to information. It enables global collaboration, facilitates this data sharing, provides huge data sets in itself because we put everything about ourselves online from our shopping data to our personal data to our banking data, all of it. The internet promotes this open source development so that People can get access to other people's research. They share research. There's online communities that work on AI. So the internet really started to speed up the process of AI research. And tech giants like Google, Facebook, Amazon, they all began to heavily invest in AI research and development as well. Um, And so, yes, this exponential growth means that machine learning algorithms can now achieve unprecedented performance And that brings us pretty much to where we are today. Deep learning, which is powered by many deep layers of artificial neural networking. It led to breakthroughs in image and speech recognition, natural language processing, and autonomous systems. Yeah, so uh, an example of this deep learning, which is the sort of foundation of AI today, uh, is something called AlphaGo. Have you heard of that, John? No, it sounds like some dodgy dating site. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> AlphaGo <laughs> for beta men and women. Um, so no, AlphaGo was a it was a pioneering AI program to demonstrate this deep learning model and uh, and reinforcement learning, and it was able to master complex board games. So chess is a complex board game, but it has a limited amount of moves right to to work into a, yeah. a program. But Go is much more complex for AI because although it's an ancient board game, an ancient Chinese board game, it has a vast number of possible moves and positions. I see. And so this program, AlphaGo, was trained on this massive data set of professional Go games and uh, was all fed into it. And by doing so, it learned strategies and patterns from all these games. But... It also used something called reinforcement learning. And this is really interesting because not only was it learning to improve its gameplay through looking at other people playing, it played itself in order to improve its gameplay. So you could say, I guess, that it learned independently how to improve its game. And then in 2016, AlphaGo faced off against Lee Seedol, who was a world champion Go player, They had a five-game match, and AlphaGo won four out of the five games. Wow. So that was a really big development. And its creator, who's called DeepMind, they later went on to develop more advanced versions, and they achieved even higher levels of performance that required even less human training data, even more of this self-learning, self-play. It's, yeah, mad. But, But is there a machine 
that can put on your duvet cover. That's what I want to know, Angela. Stop. Well, we're still not there. I'm we're still not on there. It. I'm working on it, John. <laughs> so AI is part of our lives now, whether we like it or not. Our lives are basically lived through an interconnected digital world. And in that world, AI helps us decide what to watch on TV, decides what adverts we see, it decides what medical treatment we have, where we should invest, and it provides the most frustrating customer service exchanges I have ever had, Angela. Yeah, here's a little fun fact for you, John. Have you heard of yeah. the phrase "the Internet of Things"? No, it's quite a famous phrase. It's um, about this interconnectedness of all your devices. So how you know people can control their fridge and their lights and their everything oh, in their yeah, house, their yeah. heating from their an app. And so it's that's called the Internet of Things. And that term was coined by a man called um, Kevin Ashton, who's a tech expert who was working at MIT. And he also happens to be my second cousin. Oh, yeah. what a smart family. There you go. Not much common sense. Very clever, but not much common sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he got the common sense. I got the my mind was on higher things, John. Remember? That's it. That's yeah. it. Um, I think Moore's law is the interesting thing in all of this because it's. It's that speed of change, that exponential speed of change. And I think that's what is scary to dinosaurs like us who are like, oh, this is what I can't, I don't get it. It's all happening too quickly. And have you heard the Douglas Adams theory of technology? I'm sure I have, but I can't remember it. I really, I really like this. So before I'd heard of this, I, I've got a routine, a stand-up routine that I do about how new technology gets scary in your 40s. And because I can remember my dad being freaked out by text messages. He was just like, I don't oh, just wow. ring me. I don't, you know. Right. And, and and I thought, oh, I'll never be scared of new technology. And then you, you know, you get to your 40s and things do start to get a bit like, oh, I can't take on any more information. <laughs> and then I read this thing that Douglas Adams wrote, and he said there's three rules when it comes to technology, right? Yes. And number one is that anything that is already in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works. Yes. But then anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary and you could probably get a career in it. But then anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. And I think there's really something in that. It's that, that is all true. Yeah, definitely. Isn't it? Absolutely. Because, you know, kids born today aren't going to be freaked out by AI. It's just part of their lives, you know. Yeah. I just, I, I just find that really interesting. Yeah, and I think so that's also true. true in politics. I think that uh, in politics, we things that we grew up with that we think are normal, like the welfare state, you know, that they just think that's part of the way of the world. No, you had that to be fought for, and um, is 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 not something you just take for granted. And yeah. you know, the shape of the United Kingdom is the natural order of things. Not necessarily, you know, that's been changing and uh, may change again. So I think that's uh, uh, a very good rule for life generally. Really. Yeah. Basically, things get shit after you're 35. That's what we're saying, isn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. so. And you get less tolerant and open-minded. Um, there's ethical implications, of course, with AI, not least issues of privacy uh, when so much data is collected and harvested to feed the hungry minds of the machines. Yeah, and also research shows that AI systems, even though you would think they would be more fair, they do still perpetuate biases because they're reliant on the data they're being fed. and the, Yeah biases that might you know already be incorporated into that so using ai can still lead to unfair decisions and discrimination 
that's really interesting. There's, there's, there's the question of job displacement, of course. The more work that AI does, the less work there is for actual human people. How can a society continue to punish people of working age for not working when the robots are doing all the work? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, ethical things to work out, aren't there? And there's even more existential and hypothetical threats that AI poses. Um, there's many a thought experiment that have been done in the name of AI, uh, but one I particularly found interesting. Have you heard of the paperclip maximizer theory, John? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so Swedish philosopher Nick Bostrom, he wrote about this in 2003 in a paper he wrote called Superintelligence, Paths, Dangers and Strategies. And his theory was Suppose we have an AI whose only goal is to make as many paperclips as possible. The AI will realize quickly that it would be much better if there were no humans because humans could decide to switch it off. And if humans do so, there would be fewer paperclips and it is programmed to make as many paperclips as possible. And also human bodies contain a lot of atoms and they could be made into paperclips. So the future that the AI would be trying to gear towards would be one in which there were a lot of paperclips, but no humans. So he's basically saying that when AI systems become super intelligent and independent, can they outsmart their creators and pursue their goals to these extreme lengths? Wow. You know. Can we end up in a world where there's no more humans and it's all paperclips? So it's just his way of showing that, you know, you really need to ensure the control and safety of these systems as they become increasingly independent. Before the robots rise up and take over. It's exciting yeah. and terrifying times. I'll tell you what, John, I always see this. I'm, I'm not that worried about them and, until they've worked out how to tick a box that says, I am not a robot. I know, you would have thought a clever robot would have worked that one out, wouldn't you? <laughs> You'd think so, yeah. But I'll tell you what, John, rather than ending on these apocalyptic hypotheses, yeah. I've done something to reassure you to end this episode. Because oh, I yeah. thought, you know, we opened it with um, ChatGBT writing my introduction. Yeah. So I thought, well, let's see what ChatGBT can do in the style of British comedy writer John O'Farrell. So I asked oh, it to God. write a joke in your style. I, you I'm going to get my pen and write this down. Okay. <clears throat> I'll brace yourself. Here is the joke that it wrote in the style of British comedy writer John O'Farrell. Why did the Scarecrow win an award? I don't know, Angela. Why did the Scarecrow win an award? Because it was outstanding in its field, just like a politician at a press conference. <laughs> That's terrible. I don't know if I mean, you saw that tumbleweed just <laughs> come past our screens <laughs> That's there. not even a joke. Because. Outstanding no. in a field. That's just an old joke. And yeah. then they just added, oh, politician press conference because it's John O'Farrell. It's like, that's well, not part politics. of the joke. No. Oh, he likes politics and, and the Labour Party. So and, let's and, just put... And shit jokes. I mean, to be <laughs> fair, John, they've got you nailed. Shit jokes <laughs> and politics. <laughs> Why did the chicken cross the road, asks John O'Farrell, to get to the other side where the Labour Party was holding a meeting? It's like, <laughs> it's, like it's rubbish. I think what we can take from that is that our... Um, our jobs are safe for the moment for the time being <laughs> so that's it for this week yes we will take a little moment at the end of this episode john as we always do to say thank you to our patreon supporters um who frankly have made this series possible absolutely um, so we want to do some special shout outs today yes 
So we'd like to thank Ross Adams-Newton. Olivia Baker. Graham Corf. Debbie J. And Sarah Saurus. What a good name. Thank <gasps> you, you think guys. think she's an actual dinosaur, John? Uh, maybe she I is. I think she might be. thank you for listening thank you for supporting us on patreon you can of course join our patreon on patreon.com slash we are history where you can get your hands on some lovely we are history merch you can also join us for sort of zoom events and live events and all sorts of things we've got in the pipeline join us on instagram at we are history pod so yes thank you very much for joining us do Go along to Apple Podcasts and give us a review, um, five stars if you'd like to, because that really helps to push us up the old ratings and get into more people's ears. I sort of feel sorry for anyone under 30 listening to this episode going, these flipping dinosaurs trying to do this is embarrassing. (laughs) I'm I'm still stuck with my abacus. (laughs) (laughs) My mind's still blown by a speaking spell. What were we thinking? (laughs) See you next week, guys. Bye. We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.